0: As we anticipate just unfolding this particular last chapter, this 50th chapter, I want to share with you some kind of initial thoughts. This chapter really does speak to the issue of hope. We have a hope. Peter says we have been born again into a living hope. Without hope, life is not worth living, is it? Jacob has passed off the scene. Joseph will die in this chapter. But both of them die with a great hope. And the hope is that God's word would be fulfilled and that the children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob would indeed see the fulfillment of the promise to possess that land. But there's a far greater hope that stems way back from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and that is the hope that the Messiah would come, the Savior, somebody, that, that person that was promised in that passage back in the early chapters would indeed come one day and destroy Satan and save man that is our hope we have a very real living hope i try to think back sometimes and and, and to what my life was like before i became a christian and the difference in my life and and the the, the only real contrast that I can identify is uh, the shallowness of my life prior and the substance of my life now. I was a very, very shallow person. And God has built into my life a depth, an appreciation, uh, a sense of substance and significance that I had never known. As a grown man, thought I was mature, thought I had it all together. I had nothing. What God had done in my life in the past years is you can't buy that. But more than anything else, I have a, I have a hope that is substantial. And there are times when, I, when I, I have doubts. And having doubt is not necessarily a bad thing because doubt can be redemptive. And sometimes my doubts will cause me to sit back and to think and say, all right, now what, what do I really believe? But more importantly, why do I believe it? And as I rehearse all that I know and all that I understand and I go back and I think and I, and I examine my life and I, and I see where I was and where I've come to and, and all that I know from the Bible and, and I compare it with all the other things that I know and understand from this life and the philosophies of this world, I come back to that settled conviction. Yes, yes, I am in the best place I could be. And my hope is renewed. Without hope, we have nothing. We have absolutely nothing. And I would encourage you, if you have not done that, and and most Christians do this, this little exercise, you, you, you rehearse what you know, what you've learned, and you, you try to fill in some of the blanks for yourself, and you, you compare and contrast your life with where you were and where you are today, and you have to say, you know, I, I, would, I would not be in any other place. I wouldn't trade what God has done in my life. Even, even with all the difficulties and the trials that are attendant to becoming a Christian... Even with the challenges to my... Are you challenged to grow in your life? That's, that's, that's a hallmark. And, but all the while, God is growing you. And if you, again, if you review your life, you see where you've come from. And if the truth be known, you haven't done very much. But you're much further down the road than you ever suspected you would be, and you are such a nicer person. (laughs) But it's been God who's at work in you doing His great redemptive work that He's promised. That's my hope. And my hope is grounded in this book that this is the book. This is the truth. I, I, I really don't need anything else. There, there are other things that will help me and, you know, expand and help me understand. But the reality is, if all I had was this book, that would be sufficient. He's given me everything I need for life and godliness. Everything I need. question is, do I want to take advantage of it? Do I believe that? Do I have a living hope? Well, the Bible speaks about hope, you know. It's not it's not well i kind of hope so biblical hope is confidence it's confidence you recall what the writer to the hebrews his his definition if you will of faith he says faith is the what is being sure of what we hope for it's being sure of what we hope for i am sure I am sure as I'm standing here today that my friend Jan is in glory. I am sure as I'm standing here today that one day I will be in glory. We have a hope. And this is really is the message of this chapter, chapter 50. Look with me, will you please? Just read the first 14 verses with me. Backing up into chapter 49, Jacob has just finished blessing all of his sons, and and many of the blessings really read as warnings, but they are blessings in disguise. He understands the characters of his sons, the very sons, and he knows the flaws in their life, and he knows the shortcomings, and he knows, as a result, the outworkings of those things in their lives. And so he tells them, as a warning but really a blessing in disguise watch out for these things in your life much as we will do with our own children we see tendencies and we see orientations and we see attitudes developing and we warn them watch out for this be careful this is where it's going to lead you this is what the outcome will be in your life and jacob has done that with his sons and and we're told in verse 33 that when he had finished giving instructions to his sons he drew his feet up into the bed, breathed his last, was gathered to his people, died. And Joseph threw himself upon his father and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph loved his father, Jacob. Joseph was his father's favorite son. Joseph had been suddenly taken from his father and was absent. They were separated for years and years and years and then suddenly reunited unexpectedly, wonderfully. And now Jacob is gone. Then Joseph directed the physicians in his service to embalm his father Israel. And so the physicians embalmed him, taking full 40 days, for that was the time required for embalming. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. When the days of mourning had passed, Joseph said to Pharaoh's court, If I have found favor in your eyes, speak to Pharaoh for me. Tell him, my father made me swear an oath and said, I am about to die, bury me in the tomb I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. Now let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear to do. So Joseph went up to bury his father, And all Pharaoh's officials accompanied him, the dignitaries of his court and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and those belonging to his father's household, only their children and their flocks and herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. When they reached the fleshing floor at Atad near the Jordan, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father, When the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. That is why that place near the Jordan is called Abel Mizraim. So Jacob's sons did as he had commanded them. They carried him to the land of Canaan, buried him in the cave near the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which Abraham had bought as a burial place from Ephron the Hittite along with the field. After burying his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, together with his brothers and all the others who had gone with him to bury his father. Interestingly, that those first 14 verses, over half of the last chapter, are devoted to one thing, to a description of the mourning and the burial of Jacob. Over half of that chapter. The question is, why? Why is over half the chapter devoted in such great detail to the mourning and to the burial of Jacob? You'll notice in verse 1 that Joseph mourns greatly for his father, even though he believed confidently in a future life, knowing that he would be reunited with his father. It's only natural and proper, if you will, that Joseph feel and express his keen sense of loss and sorrow. What's our last great enemy? Death. Death Death is our last great enemy. And all of us, should the Lord tarry, all of us will face it. Death. For some people, it's terrifying. For other people, they understand how to embrace it with dignity because they know that death is not the end. Death is really uh, a door that opens to life. Unimaginable. Life that you, you can't even comprehend, but there's something in you that hungers and longs for it. I have, over the years, officiated at a number of funerals, memorial services for believers and, as well, unbelievers. <coughs> Excuse me. At the service for believers, and especially those who walked with the Lord, there is sorrow, there is grief, there are tears, there is mourning, but there is, underlying all that, a sense of joy and comfort. And hope, though funerals are not my favorite thing to do, funerals for believers are a tremendous opportunity. But funerals and memorial services for non-believers are a whole different story. they are so difficult, And I recall one more most particularly that A number of years ago that I was called by the mortuary and a young boy about 12 years old had been climbing a tree and fell out of the tree and accidentally broke his neck and died instantly. And the family had no church affiliation, they had no spiritual background and They had never had anybody in their family die. They didn't know what to do, and so they left it up to the mortuary to handle the details, and they'd never had a funeral in their family. Like most people, they were kind of clueless and caught unaware and unprepared. So the mortuary called and asked if I would would officiate at the funeral. And as I always do, I, I would try to meet with some member of the family to to get some background and find out about the person, the deceased, and the, and the family's spiritual background. And there was nothing. But what I remember so poignantly was at the, at, the, uh, at the actual service, at the casket, and the young boy was in the casket. The family was sequestered off on the side in a little room with a the, with the, uh, um, curtain drawn. And there was a younger brother probably eight or nine who through the whole service wailed. Just wailed. It was the most heartbreaking thing you'd ever want to experience. And uh, at the graveside there's a great number of People, neighbors, friends who came to the, to the family. And at the graveside, this young boy, I, 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 just, I just took him aside. And I said, This is the place where you must say goodbye to your brother. No one, he was all by himself. No one, he was, he was wailing. Not even his own parents could comfort him. Nobody had anything to give him. And I shared the gospel with him. And I shared the hope that we have as Christians. And I encouraged him. I said, you honor your brother's memory. You commit your way to the Lord. And I said, the only way that you're going to be comforted in your loss is if you ask God to help you right now. And that young boy did that. The family moved out of the area, lost track of them, but it was fascinating. He calmed right down. Because all of a sudden, God broke through, broke through his loss and comforted him. He had hope. Death is our last great enemy, but as John says, one day it will be completely vanquished. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Somebody say hallelujah. (laughs) Do we look forward to that day? That is our hope. The old order of things will pass away. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more grief, no more injustice, no more death, no more loss. But for the time being, however, death is amongst us and death does cause sorrow. But as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Though we grieve, though we sorrow, we do not grieve as do those who have no hope. We will see those who have gone on ahead of us. Friday night, a lady in our church came and shared with me after the service. She had just lost her husband. We have two women in our church this morning who just, in the past couple of months, both, just lost their husbands, young men. And she was crying and crying and crying and crying, sharing with me about her husband. After 30-some years of marriage, now all of a sudden there's this hole in her life. And in the midst of her grief, in the midst of her loss, in the midst of her tears, she could also say, but I know I'll see him. She had hope. We do not grieve as do those who have no hope. That family that I spoke to you of earlier, of that young boy who died, that family had no hope. What a tragedy. The parents didn't want to listen. They couldn't face it. They couldn't... They just did not have the resources to deal with this tragic loss of their life. Beloved, you and I have hope. We grieve. We have sorrow. We experience pain. But there is a comfort that we are comforted with that God gives us. Even the Egyptians mourned in verse 3. Jacob was a well-respected man amongst the Egyptians. You recall that when Joseph had his father and brothers brought down to Egypt from the land of Canaan in the midst of the famine, and when he brought his father to meet Pharaoh, it was Jacob who blessed Pharaoh. Jacob was respected. Respected for who he was, respected for the fact that he was the father of Joseph, who had saved Egypt. He was an honored man. There were great preparations made by Joseph and as well the Egyptians for this funeral for Jacob. Pharaoh granted a special request by Joseph to bury his father in the land of Canaan, as he had promised a great entourage was provided by Pharaoh as a burial processional to carry Jacob's body back to the land of Canaan. Verse 7 says, All of Pharaoh's officials, all the dignitaries of his court and the dignitaries of Egypt, along with all the chariots and the horses, all these accompanied Joseph and his brothers to bury his father. What a funeral procession, huh? Up to the land of Canaan. But again, the question, Why? Why is all this space devoted to this funeral? Why is all this detail given about Jacob's burial? When you read about the death and the burial of the other patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, we're just simply given the bare facts that they died and they were buried. No no other detail. But, But now we have this extravagance, if you will, of detail surrounding Jacob's funeral even at the end of this chapter, when we read about Joseph's death, there's only a brief notice given about his death, the fact that his body is embalmed, or put in a coffin. Was Joseph's death and burial any less significant than Jacob's? I suggest no. But very little attention is really given to it, beyond the bare facts. Why? Why so much detail surrounding Jacob's death and burial? Would you like to know? Would you like to know what I think? I'm going to tell you. You recall at a number of points throughout the narrative, there is always this promise permeating the Genesis account Especially through the accounts of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. There's a focus on God's faithfulness to his promise to bring his people into the promised land, to give them an inheritance, an everlasting inheritance. When you read the prophets, you see this reflected also. There is a recurring image of fulfillment of this promise, a promise in the prophets. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah. The promise to return to the land. But not just merely a return to the land. There is this image of a return to the land and all the Jews would be accompanied by many people from other nations. The prophets of Israel, most notably Isaiah, saw the return as a time when all the nations would stream to Jerusalem. In chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah says, many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Do you see that? Zechariah put it this way. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you because we have heard God is with you. It's hardly happening today, would you agree? The Bible says that all the nations are going to surround Jerusalem, but not exactly surround Jerusalem to worship to snuff it out. But the Lord will come back and there will be a great change. Wouldn't it be exciting if if people saw you as you're walking down the street, you're a believer, you're a Christian, and and people just came running up to you, let let me go with you, and they grabbed onto your clothes, let me go with you to church. (laughs) I know God is with you. You have to beat them off. (laughs) That's what it's going to be like says Zechariah. Marvelous picture, would you agree? And this same imagery I'm suggesting is at work in this narrative surrounding Jacob's burial. In his final re- this is his final return, isn't it? Albeit he's dead and embalmed. In his final return to the land of promise, Jacob was indeed accompanied by a great, great number of people of a people, and more particularly officials from Egypt. The account of his burial in Canaan really does foresee a time when God will bring back from captivity, says Ezekiel, and God will have compassion on all the people of Israel. And all the nations will stream to Jerusalem to worship God. Marvelous picture, isn't it? Jacob, even in his burial, is prophetic of what God is going to be doing in the future. And now we turn back to the Joseph and his brothers, verse 15. After all the mourning and the burial has, has occurred, Joseph and his brothers, now were told, returned to Egypt. When they saw their father was dead, they said, Joseph's brothers said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph, saying, Your father's left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them, and he spoke harshly to them. Is that what it says? No, he spoke kindly to them. God had led them all down to Egypt. Who was the first one to go to Egypt that God had brought to Egypt? Joseph. And then after Joseph had gone through all of his trials and his training and his education elevated, then God brought the rest of his family down to Egypt. By this time, the famine had been over for many, many years. May have been an excellent time for all of Jacob's descendants to return to the land of Canaan. Do you think? Famine's over. Let's go back home. But Joseph knew that they must stay in Egypt. Now remember, Joseph has been given the birthright, he is now, in effect, the head of the family. And what Joseph says goes, notwithstanding the fact that he's also second in command in all of Egypt. But Joseph knew that they must stay in Egypt until God told them it was time to return. He recognized, because no doubt he was well aware of what God had said to Abraham way back in chapter 15, that they would live in Egypt for a long time, indeed 400 years. And so as they go back to Egypt to live, Joseph's brothers, after their father is gone, Now, this is, this is significant. After Jacob has died, the brothers are afraid now, and they're afraid that Joseph would take revenge on them for what they had done to him years earlier. Had they treated him badly? Absolutely. Now you recall that when Joseph's brothers came down to Egypt to get the grain. And Joseph revealed himself to them. He says, I am your brother, Joseph. He had taken the initiative to acknowledge that though hey, they had mistreated him, God really was involved. They never say a word about it themselves. They never acknowledge what they did. They never confess it as sin and as wrong. And they never ask for forgiveness if you go back to chapter 45 and read it. So now they are assuming, after their father's death, they're assuming that Joseph is still carrying a grudge. Although he has told them way back in chapter 45, no problem. And that he assured them that all that had happened to him was, in effect, God's doing. But their sense of guilt was still so great, so strong, that they couldn't really believe that he had forgiven them. You see, there's something about unconfessed sin. You carry it with you, and you carry the guilt with you. And it's a, it's a heavy weight. It's a shadow on your life. This is why it's so important. When you become a Christian, you confess your sins. You acknowledge where you've been wrong. You unburden yourself. And you're able then to actually receive God's forgiveness. This is the whole point of repentance. When people don't confess their sins and they don't repent, they still carry this stuff with them. And there's never, ever really any confidence, though they can say the words and they know intellectually, yes, Jesus died for my sins and he forgave me, there is no real engaging of that. And so they're burdened. They wonder why they don't have the joy of the Lord in their life. And this is true of his brothers. When Joseph assured them back in chapter 45 that he wasn't holding a grudge for them not to worry about it. And he says it all. From then till now, nothing is said by either him or his brothers. There's no acknowledgement whatsoever of what had happened between them. And now, in memory of their father, they appeal to Joseph for forgiveness. It's now where they make a full confession it's now where they ask him to forgive them. This had not been done up to this point. No wonder they're still afraid. No wonder they're still anxious. No wonder they're worried that now Jacob's off the scene that Joseph might seek revenge. They have no confidence whatsoever. Is confession important? Absolutely. That's why John says in 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most of the time we just sweep the stuff under the rug and we just make some assumptions. Well, it's not important to confess. No, it's critical that we confess. Otherwise we live with this burden of fear and guilt. And although Joseph had no... Thought whatsoever of punishing them, their suspicion of him. How heartbreaking this must have been to him. In their minds, he's still suspect. This is what you thought of me. I've cared for you, I've provided for you, you still think I'm. Their suspicion of him combined with their confession and their plea for forgiveness moves him to tears. All he can do is weep. And then they offered themselves to him to become his slaves. They had sent him into slavery, so now they volunteered to be slaves themselves. Why? Why would they do that? May I suggest to you, and this is worth keeping, so you might want to jot this down. Sincere confession of sin. Say that with me. Sincere confession of sin against someone always includes restitution. Sincere confession of sin against someone always includes restitution. This is why the brothers offered themselves to be slaves. This was the only way that they they knew to offer restitution. We'll be your slaves. But Joseph assured them that his intention was not to take revenge. He would not allow them to become his slaves. He says to them, don't be afraid. Assures them once again. He says, am I in the place of God that I should take matters and take vengeance into my own hands? This was unthinkable to Joseph. The very thing that they thought. God had so clearly used their evil, their malice towards him to accomplish his good purpose. The saving of many lives. See, Joseph had marvelously, years earlier, had marvelously come to a place where he had had contextualized all these events into this marvelous understanding that God was sovereign. That keeps us from complaining. (laughs) I remember my friend Larry Couch. I had him preach a few years ago, and he had tailored this marvelous sermon about his life and everything that had happened in his life and, and all these turns and things. And, and he, he, every point he said, but if I hadn't done that, then this wouldn't have happened. And I saw God's hand there. And you know, we always look with twenty twenty 20 hindsight, right? And so Joseph now is, is seeing marvelously his life has been arranged by God. He, he had no basis for holding a grudge. The things you did, God did them. (laughs) Kind of takes a sting out of things, doesn't it? In fact, in Joseph's reply, you'll notice in verse 19, 20, and 21, there's a threefold reply to his brothers. And in that reply you and I can find what, what I can say is, is really the epitome of our faith. This is, this is what it is to be Christian. This is what it is to be Christ-like. He says, first of all, in verse 19, don't be afraid, am I in the place of God? We need to leave all the writing of the wrongs done against us to God. In other words, it's not ours to get even. We don't have to get even. I don't have to settle the score. You know, we have a saying which I don't get mad. I no. I I don't have to. I don't have to take revenge. I don't, to get, I don't have to get even. I don't have to settle the score. Am I in the place of God? What a lesson. Boy, that takes a lot of pressure off your life, doesn't it? The Apostle Paul underscores that in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. And he puts it this way. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It's written his mind to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. All right, God, if you can get them, then I don't have to get them. Does God want to get them? Yeah, saved. Now, if you go on and read the balance of that passage toward the end of the chapter, Romans chapter 12, you'll say, he says, Paul says, on the contrary, here's what you do. Rather than taking revenge yourself, here's what you do. If your enemy is hungry, you feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, you give him something to drink. He says, in doing so, you will heat burning coals on their head. The coals of conviction. If I can translate that loosely into our vernacular, kill them with kindness. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul again underscores that same theme. He says, make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. That's something that is uncharacteristic of a believer. To pay back wrong for wrong. He says, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else, even those on the outside. In First Peter chapter 4, verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will, you mean God wants me to suffer? I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in a counseling session. People come in and say, God doesn't want me to suffer, does he? I guess. <laughs> it's part of this life. But in the midst of your suffering, because it is his will to suffer, he says what? Commit yourself to God. Now remember, the people that Peter's writing to, they are suffering terrific persecution. You recall from our study of First Peter, how many were there when we studied First Peter? A handful of you, okay. You still get those notes, by the way. They should commit themselves to the faithful creator and continue to do what? Good. Leave it up to God. Leave it up to God. You continue to do good. Jesus, when he was being reviled, Peter will go on to say, Jesus did not revile in return, but he kept entrusting himself to his Father who judges justly. Oh, how tempting it is to get back at somebody. Let me hit him once. Just once. No, not even once. Feel like it, though, huh, sometimes? Just want to whack him. The second thing that we learn from Joseph's response to his brothers is found in the next verse, in verse 20... He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish his will. Oh, man. Beloved, you and I, like Joseph, must learn to see God's providence in man's malice. Things that people do to us that are just mean, that are wrong, that are unfair. We must see God's providence. God has allowed it. God has purposed it. If you don't believe me, read the book of Job. First two chapters. I don't deserve this. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. God is at work in your life. And he will use all things. You recall Paul says in Romans 8.28. He will use all things together for... You're bad. No, you're good. Because what? You're called according to his purpose. And the third, third thing that we learn from Joseph, verse 21, this is a powerful lesson. He says, I will provide for you and your children. Beloved, repay evil not only with forgiveness, but also with practical affection. This is the hardest thing in the world to do. Repay evil, not only with forgiveness, but with practical affection. Let me read to you from, in fact, I want you to turn there with me, Luke chapter 6, an example of this. Luke chapter 6, page 1053 I'll wait for you because I think it's that important that it enter your eye gate as well as your ear gate. If you don't have a Bible, look on with your neighbor, please. Luke chapter 6. The turning of pages. People searching the scriptures. Verse 27, you notice it's all in red. But I tell you who hear me. Mm. Right now, just ask yourself, do I have ears to hear? God, give me ears to hear right now. I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. <laughs> is that hard? <laughs> I guess. I mean, I read those words. This is, this is the third time I'm reading them this week, and I got to read them one more time. You only got to read them once with me. Talk about convicting. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. You're not a big deal. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Why? Because I trust God. Because I just trust God. I don't have to sweat anything. And Then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Aren't you glad for that? Be merciful just as your father is merciful. And Joseph's threefold reply to his brothers, may I suggest, this is the epitome of what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be Christ-like. You are surrendered. You acknowledge God's sovereignty. You trust the Lord. You're not combative. You don't have to get even. You're a yielded vessel. You are gracious, understanding, compassionate, forgiving. And at last we come to the concluding passage of Genesis, the death of Joseph, verse 22. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with his father's family. He lived 110 years. Saw the third generation of Ephraim's children and also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, they were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, surely, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. When Jacob died, Joseph was 56 years old. He would live another 54 years after his father's death. He would die at the age of 110. This was considerably younger than the ages at which his forefathers had died. Abraham died at 175. Isaac died when he was 180. Jacob died when he was 147. You can see that man's longevity was still declining after the flood. Joseph, we're told, lived long enough to see his great-grandchildren. How many of Joseph's brothers were still alive? We have no idea. It's not stated in the text. But when he knew that he was about to die... He called his brothers around him. Not just to say goodbye. He called them around him to remind them. One last time. There was a tremendous heritage awaiting them. To remind them of God's promise. Think if if you were about to pass off the scene and you could gather your family and your friends what last word of encouragement would you give them? What word of utmost significance would you pass on to them if you could? He wanted to remind them, lest they forget, that God intended someday that all the children of Israel return to Canaan where he would finally give them the promised land that he had sworn to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph then made them promise not to leave his bones in Egypt. Though he had spent the majority of his life there, though he was second only to Pharaoh, his heart really was in the land of Canaan. That's where his hope lie. Don't bury me here. Take my bones with you when you go. And he realized that it would be impossible for his brothers to organize a burial expedition for him as they had done for Jacob. But he fully believed that they indeed someday would all move back to Canaan. And it would be at that time that he wanted them to take his bones with them. Indeed, in the book of Exodus, chapter 13, verse 19, you see Moses as they're just leaving the land. They're exiting the land of of Egypt. Moses remembers to take Joseph's bones. Where are the bones? Don't forget the bones. Joshua, chapter 24, verse 32. They carry Joseph's bones through the 40 years of wandering. They carry Joseph's bones across the Jordan River into the Promised Land. Through all the years of warfare and battling and settling and taking possession of the land, finally, till the end of the book of Joshua, the second to last verse, they finally bury his bones at Shechem, the place that his father Jacob had bought. His hope has been realized. For this confidence in faith, Joseph is memorialized in the book of Hebrews, that great hall of fame of faith in chapter 11, verse 22. By faith, Joseph, by faith, he had, he had the, the confidence that when when his end was near, he spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. Joseph died, his body was embalmed and placed in a coffin. His dying words, I think, epitomize the hope of the Old Testament and the New Testament. His dying words, God will surely come to your aid he says it to his brothers and to his family. God will surely come to your aid. The new te- that's the hope of the New Testament. Revelation chapter 22, verse 20. Notice this. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Yes. He will surely come to your aid. Amen? Beloved, the book of Genesis, as we conclude this book, it started with God and man in the garden, did it not? And it ends in a coffin in Egypt. But that's not the end of the story. The book of Genesis recounts the entrance of sin into the family of man, but it also relates the faithfulness of God in providing a way of life for man. Genesis, the book of beginnings, leaves off with the idea of something still to come. The transition is set to the book of Exodus, where we will see God's purpose and plan continued over the next however long. <laughs> Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this great book. Thank you for the, the account of your working in human history from the beginning through to the end of Joseph's life. And... Lord, for the image of his bones being carried by the Israelites into that promised land. Thank you for the very real hope that we have. That hope that is pictured in the communion table, Lord, as we come to your table now, renew in us a a sense of excitement and vision, renew our hope, O God, as we bow before you as we come to this table memorializing Jesus' death and looking forward to his coming again. God, thank you. We love you this morning. And we praise you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.